Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of Bunker Daily, the daily information injection sibling to Wednesday's full panel data life support machine. I am your host, Alex Andreu. There is, of course, value to big picture retrospection when one emerges from a crisis. I found this when I wrote up my investigation of COBRA meetings and daily press conferences in February and March for the Byline Times. But there is also value to understanding the speed and heat of a moment for people who were in the middle of it. My guest today is the author of Duty of Care, a searing read that seeks to impart precisely that speed and heat of the coronavirus pandemic as it unfolded in the UK. An eminent cardiologist, he hit the news when he resigned over Dominic Cummings breaking lockdown rules and refusing to relinquish his post or even accept responsibility and apologise. He is also the founder of the charity Heroes, to which all royalties from the book will go, and which has delivered over half a million units of PPE to frontline staff, has dedicated a 350,000 fund to researching sustainable reusable PPE, and has set up a support grant to fund healthcare workers needing help with everything from mental health to childcare. Dr. Dominic Pimenta, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the bunker, especially knowing, having read the book, how scarce your free time is. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. Um, <laughs> uh, and actually, you know, making all this time for for interviews and things to, to talk about the book. But that's some very kind words. And, and <laughs> listening to, to, to you li- reading it back to me, yes, I suppose I have been uh, uh, somewhat busy, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> um, talking of the speed and heat of the moment... I was struck by a passage in your book which described hospitals at the time as taking on properties of time and space all of their own. Mm. You were describing an almost inception-like situation where every time you went in for a shift, wards had closed, wards had opened, wards had moved, locker rooms were in a different place and procedures had altered radically. How was it trying to do your job to save lives in the middle of such panic and flux. Yeah, it was, and I think that it felt like going and trying to work in in a Rubik's cube that someone was sort of furiously twisting every every day. Sometimes <laughs> um, I've never missed a shift in my entire career until about the third or fourth weekend in the pandemic, when the rotor had changed five times in the week, and someone phoned me and said, "I'm supposed to be at work today," and I, I literally hadn't checked it that day. I think it may give a sense of not necessarily panic. So where where we worked, we had the capacity to to keep moving, to keep expanding. And I wrote about that in the book as we expanded 
uh, our intensive care from one to two to three to four, so quadrupling capacity. And it was a great, you know, a great privilege really to to see that in 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 motion. And, and my small part as as you know a cog on the ground more than anything else, not really doing anything, you know, trying to manage this huge logistic beast uh, to to save as many lives as, as you say uh, as possible. So so the much the much maligned NHS managers um, deserve quite a lot of credit. Yeah, and I think so. And I think that's is an interesting, much maligned managers. There's oft this phrase of, uh, and I've looked at this before, there's a phrase of there's too many managers in the NHS. But actually, if you look at business, I think it's about one uh, employee, one, so one manager per six employees. And in the NHS, it's about 30 employees to per manager. So if mm. anything, we have less managers than we probably should. Um, but the, you know, and what was interesting is as busy as maybe my life reads during the time, that was probably true of nearly every healthcare professional to some degree. Everybody was doing double or triple time and, and taking on duties after duties. I think there was a particularly enraging Telegraph headline that talked about how the NHS couldn't cope or, or the lockdown was because the NHS couldn't cope. And nothing could really be further from from the truth i've mm. never witnessed the speed um and you know incredible movement of of people uh, to respond in such a uh, vast uh, problem nationally and actually internationally mm. um uh, there's a good example i write about in the book of a, a colleague of mine who who'd actually applied to move a clock you know a clock nailed to a wall or whatever for three years, and that clock was still in the wrong place. Um, but the same hospital managed to build a 16-bed resuscitation unit in their A&E waiting room in three days. So there's something to be said for, you know, when needs must, uh, you know, the NHS was there. And I think that's a really key message of the book, this idea that, A, we couldn't cope is it, it, incorrect, but also the, how we coped. So there's also this narrative of, of the NHS wasn't overwhelmed, you know, the yes, and you say very you. clearly it was overwhelmed. Yes, yeah, and we essentially we cannibalized ourselves to, to to cope with that. You know, we cancelled electives, we moved rooms around that previously were being used for other purposes, and we massively redistributed staff. I mean, you know, uh, uh, lots of different staff from not just myself, but from all over the hospitals and lots of hospitals and nurses as well. And uh, I, I, as a doctor, it's a smallish jump. Um, to, to be redistributed around. We're kind of used to doing that. And I'm mm. relatively junior, so I've done that quite a lot already, bouncing between departments. But many of the nurses would have worked on the same ward, never mind the same hospital, the same ward, uh, for, for maybe a decade or more. Um, and they were just as willing and, 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 uh, and just as sort of, uh, what's the word, sleeves rolled up, I guess, um, to be working. I, I hope your colleague took this opportunity to move the clock and and blame it on the general. COVID oh, I think, they, you know, I, I think they knocked the wall down. I think that's actually what happened. Uh, Excellent. No so, yeah. um, so, back, but to take you back in time, uh, you describe how back in um, January, I think it was, your very first gut reaction before you knew the source of the news was it was fake news. Um, <laughs> And how gradually you became interested. And I was struck by, you know, as a medical professional, because this isn't your field of expertise, how similar to uh, what everyone else was doing, what you were doing was, you know, you were Googling and looking at the research and keeping an eye on things, albeit with a better capacity to understand it than, than a layperson. And how when you started wearing a mask on public transport, which was in mid-February, you felt self-conscious having 
scoffed at people wearing them in the past. Um, why do you think we have such an active anti-masker movement in this country still? And how do we deal with it? I mean, that's a, a very difficult question to answer, really. And I think it, it is, if you draw sort of a, a Venn diagram of the anti-maskers and the anti-vaccinators, I'd imagine it would be one and the same. I think it, it speaks to maybe a broader issue with not just this country, but almost all of Western and I, I don't know, beyond Western civilization, which is we don't seem to be able to cope with the level of information we have access to. We don't quite have grown into the adolescence of of the internet and misinformation is now so rife that we've started to you know to disbelieve everything you know the basic science of, of medicine and at the same time quite happy to to tweet about that you know you know mistrust in science on the iphone you know using the 4g network <laughs> so the, the, there's this cognitive dissonance and I, I write about this in the book about what we what some people hold and, and that's true in different different respects and we're not i don't think i've sort of lost hope that we are rational human beings in general but when issues of extreme importance come what i really worry about is how easily it becomes a, a you know a diversifying issue a divergent issue where people would take sides and, and generally drawing sides different issues but the same people on the same side and how we reach across that divide and I think the internet sort of ferments some of these ideas this misinformation that is incredibly dangerous and we sort of saw that in reality I mean the pandemic <laughs> believe it or not and there's lots of reports of you know coronavirus hoaxes yeah, yeah, yeah. coming to harm but the reality is that's always been the case it's just this is just a more obvious situation and the, it's one I think probably the greatest challenge of our you know generation and that extends to all the other challenges that face us climate change pandemics etc is how do we get people to believe in the same facts mm. before even we decide what to do? I think Obama put it best. We used to, you know, have different opinions on, on about uh, about what to do, and and now we actually can't even agree on the basic facts. And I think, as a doctor especially, that's particularly infuriating because what I often see is patients who are very vigorously holding these, you know, anti scientific, anti medicine beliefs, but at the drop of a hat, they're ill and they're in hospital. Uh, and then, and then all those beliefs don't last very long. Yeah. So when the shit hits the fan, that's where they are. It seemed to me time and time again in the book that what you described was a lag between the best data we had and the guidance coming from government. So, for instance, there's a there's a a, a point. Uh, after we knew there was community transmission, after we, you know, we had the first actual case of someone who hadn't travelled anywhere or come into contact with anyone that had travelled, and you talk about a patient presenting symptoms whom you still couldn't test because the guidance days later was still, we only test people who have travelled. Mm. Um, the same thing happened with care homes. You know, there's an incident where you couldn't be tested because you hadn't shaved in the last few hours. Uh, you know, the, the the criteria for sending patients to Nightingale hospitals was that they have to have one organ failing, uh, and you had patients that had no organs failing and two organs failing. It, did disaster, did the those 60,000 ONS uh, deaths brew in that gap 
between the best information we have available and the state moving to uh, put it into effect. Mm, I think the delay, certainly. I mean, and that's, you know, we were calling for, specifically for early lockdown on the 16th of March, and, and nothing of significance happened for another week. And I think some of the estimates for about half those deaths occurred from that delay alone, because it's an exponential curve. Yeah. So uh, at that point, and, and the other thing with the case numbers is there's this sort of incubation period, which at the time we thought was probably about two weeks, it's probably a bit less than that, about seven days. But that means once the virus is abroad, the numbers continue to double, regardless of what you do for approximately a week to two weeks. Mm. So there's always this, you know, that lag is almost built into the process. So if you're reacting to the case numbers and hoping that you can affect something tomorrow, well, actually, you need to be reacting two weeks prior. So there's there's that issue. There did seem to be this strange difficulty in, you know, not just in, in what the best data was, but what was happening on, on the ground. Like we were seeing cases, you know, community cases quite regularly uh, in London. Um, and either they didn't have a diagnosis or the diagnosis was significantly delayed. Um, and, you know, it wasn't it was far from me, the only person thinking about this. There were very uh, many colleagues thinking, well, this is coronavirus. I'm going to treat it regardless. And that is a sort of trait of many doctors to just think, you know, the, the guidance are the guidance. But I, I'm the doctor here and I'm going to do this. Um, but there was a lot of resistance to doing that. And it's not as straightforward, I suppose, as saying, you know, I'm the doctor I want to test because it has a lot of implications. You know, if you start testing everybody for coronavirus very early on unnecessarily while well, you use capacity, but also you require, you then mandate, you know, the movement of patients around in hospital where resources are pretty tight and generate a significant amount of anxiety. So there is a fine balance, but, you know, in retrospect, and, and even at the time, it was obvious that we, we got the balance wrong. And it wasn't quite clear what the rationale was for the guidance to not change or be disseminated, whether that was a logistic issue, whether that was a deliberate issue uh, in regards to capacity or, or some other reason. And I suppose that would be one of the key questions. What did happen, you know, in that week between sort of March the 11th uh, and March the 23rd? Those two weeks were probably responsible for all the excess death that's put us at the top of the tables, the worst league tables uh, for excess death in the world and where the key decisions were made and, and, you know, what was deliberate, what was miscommunicated and and what was a mistake. The Nightingale hospitals, you describe uh, your encounters with a colleague that was very excited by them and you Mm. seem to be slightly less so. The Excel Centre one has now been won down, having had at its peak, uh, I think it was... 14 patients mm. at any one time in it, uh, a, a hospital that was designed to take a possible 4,000 people. Were they, it, was this a timing issue? Were, were they just too late because we misjudged when the peak would be? Or were they Potemkin villages for ministers to have their photo taken in front of? Mm, that's a good question. And uh, I, my, I have to say my opinion varies between all of those uh, various points. I suppose on the broader level, you know, it had capacity in theory, uh, you know, in terms of beds uh, for 4,000 patients. I very much doubt it had staff for 4,000 patients without significantly draining other parts of the country or other parts Mm -hmm. of London. Because the one thing that we don't have and have never really had, you can create as many physical beds as you want, but you can't create ICU nurses. You can't create 
I see you doctors, you can try very hard, but you know, I was never what I would consider an. ICU you can doctor. retrain people as you as you did. Yeah, but, but to yeah, some but, extent, you know, I can yeah, press some of the buttons. But there's a there's a ceiling to it. There's a physical ceiling to it. I'm I'm keen to move to the more personal aspects of the book. Um, you you don't mention this, and you never complain about it, but collecting the anecdotes you mention. Uh, and I know this also from my brother-in-law, who's a doctor. Uh, at times like this, you seem to become personally a hub for everyone's worries. Families, friends, neighbors, acquaintances, they, they look at you as some sort of font of all COVID-19 wisdom. That, that pressure must have been immense. Yeah, and I suppose, well, you know, as you mentioned, you, your brother-in-law... I think there's doctors take a two different paths on this. I, I know I certainly know some doctors that will literally shut any family communication down. They won't talk about anything medical at all. <laughs> and I've always taken the opposite route. I, I don't know why. I suppose you know. I, 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 it's, I and I've been you know, regardless of the COVID, been personally involved in lots of medical problems for lots of members of my family and I, I just guess what would I want you know if I wasn't a doctor some, some advocate and I also know the intricacies of the NHS and the difficulties so I, I've always been that person not just being in COVID and me and my wife both doctors so we tend to sort of you know um, trade places for, for each other's family because it's very hard to be you know properly objective um, and not in the way of treating family members but you know helping them navigate and, and speaking to their problems and you know, ears prick up at a family gathering, you say, well, that doesn't sound right. Why didn't you get that checked out? Or, or similar. And then obviously, you know, we I became so, uh, you know, bunkered in with, with COVID from many different aspects, you know, from the beginning from calling lockdown and then through the charity and PPE stuff. So it was, but I, I suppose I just thought of it as part of, you know, part of the job. Part uh, of the job, yeah. You know, not just a job. You say, I'm not very good at emotions. I find it hard to connect the inner and outer spheres. Um, I was struck by a moment uh, in the midst of all this where you and your wife actually started making your wills because frontline healthcare staff were dying at that point. Do you think that level of detachment is how healthcare staff survive such situations hmm. i think there is an element of professional detachment um i wrote a thread a few years ago about is medicine a job or not and i think i came to the conclusion that if you don't treat it like a job and you don't detach yourself then you're too you know you see too much life with a capital l you know mm. too many death birth trauma major you know and there's a few yeah. moments now that still haunt me um throughout throughout my career you're taught an element of clinical detachment from emergency scenarios for good reason you know you have to go and do the cardiac arrest you you have to know the cogs to, to save somebody's life or, or not as the case may be but what you're not really taught particularly well is, is how to deal with the patient's grief with your own grief and i suppose whether that's a function of being a bloke or a function of me specifically or, or of the profession, I, I don't know. But there's always been this element of a slight sometimes surprise, I think, of, of that I, I'm always sort of taken aback by my own feelings. And and I won't particularly react. I remember a, lo a long time ago, a family member, a young family member was very, very sick, um, very, very suddenly. And I ended up almost having to resuscitate them um, while the ambulance came. 
Um, and at the time, I was completely in doctor mode. You know, someone I was very close to, a young boy, and didn't think of anything above it at all other than, you know, I need to sort this out, stop the breathing out, you know, get the ambulance in. And he turned out to be fine, and I was completely fine. Everyone's like, aren't you, like, completely freaked out? Because, you know, his mum, everything was just shouting and screaming. Mm. <laughs> and then I just remember going home and just having, like, feeling sick and vomiting, but not really feeling anything. And I thought, is this is this how I process emotions? Like, I don't connect to the inner but it goes somewhere else. And and throughout my career, I've had funny, you know, stomach bleeds and uh, inflammation of the heart and, you know, you store it all elsewhere. Yeah, it's all somatic and it will go somewhere else. And that's why I always wonder, like, am I just digging this down and, and not addressing it? And I think that is a real almost analogy for what's going to, what has happened to the NHS overall. Mm. You know, we, we've been through a massive trauma as a healthcare system. Um, and that staff haven't really had time to breathe because the work's still there. And there's a lot of work, especially through the charity now, to to try and make sure that we preserve as many staff as possible and, and we don't end up losing a whole bunch of staff, potentially in the midst of the next, you know, the next wave or the next pandemic. Mm. And, and at the time when you took a stand uh, about Dominic Cummings breaking lockdown, um, you were attacked by right-wing press and websites like Guido Fawkes, essentially for not resigning enough because apparently you didn't relinquish your national training number, essentially dropping out of the profession altogether immediately. I mean, how frustrating is it to be doing all that and at the same time ha- be basically trolled? Yeah, and I think that <laughs> that is the one. So it's interesting, the, the Guido stuff. Um, I actually just found their archive very recently, and they've got a whole archive on me. And most of it is... Is, is rubbish like most of it's factually incorrect i think they've quoted me saying something which is actually a guardian article which i've nothing to do with i don't i don't even know where that's attributed to so it's it's, it's a bit worrying but equally you know in march i was writing articles uh, and getting a lot of similar negative you know you're sensationalist opportunistic self-promoting and it's, i think it, it sort of just comes you know with with the territory um and if you want to and there was a lot of you know personal blowback and 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 professional blowback as well from from even from that you know from speaking out on march 16th etc which to be honest in retrospect was not controversial in the slightest so i sort of you know i sort of expected it but equally you know if you want to be affecting something in the national conversation you have to understand that there's lots of fractious opinions and very strong opinions on both sides and that's the nature of the conversation and it, just to be part of the you know part of the territory is that it's the lay of the land and it is an unfortunate part of our yeah the, the, conversation, but they there's are. a sentence uh, towards the end of the book that really sort of imprinted on me uh, you write all i've ever wanted is to be wrong about all this do you think the right people have learned the, the right lessons or is there a lazy assumption that the NHS stepped in to save us and they can st- step in to save us again during a second or third or fourth wave. I think that's a really important point. And, and part of what the, you know, the furious drive to, to write the book, because it was sort of about six weeks of writing, um, which is pretty fast, was to try and get that message out as soon as possible before the second wave i mean if we're going to learn any lessons we need to learn them now <laughs> there's no point yeah. you know, waiting for the inquiry until the pandemic's over because we potentially will lose twice as many lives projected in the reasonable worst case scenario for this winter if there is a second wave mm. and i think and what's very frustrating even over the summer was this 
rewriting of the narrative, you know, saying we did lock down on time, we have performed well. And I think that didn't really land um, for many reasons, mostly because the numbers, unfortunately, are the numbers and they're fairly immutable. You know, the worst economic hit and the worst uh, hit from, from the virus. But what we really, and what fundamentally, I suppose, the mistake has always been is this sort of paternalistic lack of transparency attitude from government. And not really just giving the basics to people and saying, look, this is the virus. Yes, it's a terrible situation, but we still are getting, you know, sloganeering. All the schools must be open, despite schools being a very different and heterogeneous group. And I think that particular lesson hasn't hasn't been learned at all. And that very much worries me for what happens in the next. I I was locked down in Greece um, for some of this with uh, uh, shielding my mother, who is Mm. elderly and has Alzheimer's. Um, and I was struck by the difference of, between the the daily briefing in the UK, which I watched every day, and it, it happened to be just after the daily briefing in Greece. Mm. Uh, and the daily briefing in Greece was always uh, science-led, effectively. Mm. And the daily briefing in the UK always seemed like a like a party political broadcast. So. I think there's some validity to the people who say that that this was uh, partly treated uh, not as a public health emergency but as a PR crisis. Um, I I don't want to give the wrong impression about your book. Uh, I have focused on the dramatic, of course, for this interview, but it's also it contains a really hopeful message, you know, about the kindnesses you went to, you mm. witnessed, and the humanity everywhere, and the incredible response of staff. For example, a, a group of plastic surgeons got together and designed a better mask, mm. you know, so that people would be more comfortable um, while working. What is next for the charity heroes, and how can people help? I mean, that's a great question so the the issue i suppose we're facing we had this meeting only a few days ago um in my new role as the chairman is we don't know what's going to happen if the pandemic returns then our role is much more acute and we'll be across delivering food and and ramping up ppe production again and looking at novel ways to help in that respect and if it doesn't or is it's less you know less difficult to, to deal with on the ground, then our, our predominant role will be um, supporting the welfare and well-being and the focus really to be trying to preserve lots of the welfare measures that were put in place, you know, the night food. Um, I think I said this in the book, but, you know, chips, hot chips at 2 a.m. I think should be a human right. And that really <laughs> is, I mean, that really is the case. It's such a morale boosting thing. And, you know, I think the IPPR at the beginning of the pandemic estimated about 300,000 staff were considering leaving. And I'm sure that numbers must be considerably higher after the pandemic. Yeah. And that's catastrophe. I mean, that's economic catastrophe, that's societal catastrophe. So if we don't be the champions of how to best support staff and keep them in their jobs and keep them well supported so they can do their jobs, um, then I think that will be the chief function that determines if the NHS lives or lives or dies, if I'm honest. Mm. So what we've been trying to do in the last, you know, um, couple of couple of weeks is how we build that network. Because what we struggled with initially was we came from nowhere. So trying to get into hospitals and, and actually trying to engage with staff was very difficult with so much noise. So we're actually launching in the next couple of weeks a, a membership platform to try and sign up NHS staff 
and then reaching out to business to start to consolidate some of those, you know, the discounts, the freebies, the stuff that really made a difference. Yeah, yeah. But also access to all our services and trying to work out what people need and when they need it. So counselling particularly, we've been pushing quite hard and delivering sort of 600 hours a week of counselling. And then what's interesting with the PPE side is that we've now probably got capacity to create a sort of reusable, sustainable uniform. Uh, you know, that includes visor, gown, scrubs, um, and to some extent, a mask as well. Um, and how we go about testing that and getting that ready and, and safe. So the visor has a CE mark and we're doing similar things with other parts of PPE. And lots of people in the charity have said, Dom, you're crazy, the pandemic's over. And I've pushed very hard for say, well, it might be over, but actually it might not be. And if we produce a war chest and keep it, there's no harm in selling that all in January. And how do we know there's not another pandemic in two years' time? Well, precisely. And actually, what would we have want to have done in February? We should do that now. Um, and if we're wrong, we're wrong. And that's not a, such a big deal. There's ways of you know recouping that money. It's not such a problem. But if we don't do that, then uh, we get stuck again. I think that's unforgivable. So that's so kind of what we what's the website address where people can... Yeah, so it's uh, helpthemhelpus.co.uk. Um, you can donate directly on, on the website. And, you know, obviously donations will be hugely helpful in funding uh, all of these activities. And what's interesting about being, you know, a novel charity sort of outside the NHS traditional structures, we can do things uh, innovatively and, and research-based that many other uh, sort of traditional charities can't. Um, and I hope that becomes a sort of new, almost charity 2.0 model, I guess, for how we deliver services and how we be as effective as possible. Yes, I, I doubt the traditional charity CEO spends much time in the wee hours of the morning washing um, <laughs> washing goggles in a print farm. Um, yeah. Dominic, I cannot thank you enough, not just for this illuminating half hour, but for everything you did and continue to do. Please know that for every troll, there are people like me to whom you are a bona fide superhero. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's an exaggeration, but that, that's very kind. And actually, you know, compliments... Uh, always appreciated, you know, to deal with the trolls. So thank you very much. And listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday mornings with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday morning. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and please support us if you can on the funding platform Patreon where you can search for the Bunker Podcast. Stay socially distant but emotionally available. This is Alex Andreu in the Bunker saying over and out for now. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.